Welcome to The Conversation. This podcast is produced by QSource as part of Medicare's quality improvement organization efforts to share information, educate clinical staff, and encourage improvement through best practices. Each episode discusses a topic that is timely and applicable to you, your staff, and your patients. November is Diabetes Awareness Month, and we've chosen to have a weekly four-part discussion on this topic. In this episode, the conversation is about diabetes and depression treatment. Quality Improvement Specialist Kathy Ray leads a conversation with Mary DeGroot, Associate Professor of Medicine and Acting Director of the Diabetes Translation Research Center at Indiana University, and is joined by QSource Marketing Specialist Lynn Maples, who was recently diagnosed as a diabetic and shares his experience as a new patient. Now, let's get this conversation started. Uh, Dr. Mary DeGroot with us today to finish our conversation or actually continue our conversation on diabetes. Um, we've mentioned in our first podcast the depression um, and how the mental health piece is associated with diabetes, and we're going to continue the conversation today and talk about some interventions uh, for treatment among our adults and socioeconomically and culturally diverse populations that have uh, diabetes. And we're welcoming, welcoming Lynn Maples also to the table in our conversation today too. So, okay, we'll let you get started. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you, Kathy, again, for the opportunity to join the podcast and to have this conversation about uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is diabetes and depression, and particularly um, what we can do about it. Um, so I'm delighted to be able to join you today. We, as I, as I mentioned in our first podcast, uh, we know that diabetes and depression is all too common. Uh, it, uh, it affects uh, depressive symptoms, affect one in four people with diabetes, and that's type one diabetes or type two diabetes. Um, and clinical depression that, would that indicates the, the need for treatment um, can affect as many people as one in eight people with diabetes. Um, and again, that's true for people with type one diabetes as well as people with type two diabetes. Um, and the really good news, I think, about diabetes and depression research that has evolved significantly over the past 30 years um, is that we can treat depression for people with diabetes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we don't, people don't have to live for long periods of time um, with depression if they are able to get effective treatment. Um, and I think the other piece of good news is that we have lots of different tools now to use and that um, it, it's not a one size fits all. Certainly, we know that to be true, whether that's uh, individuals or for um, whether whether it's, you know, men versus women, diversity, um, mm -hmm. there's lots of different tools that people can use. And, um, and these tools are comparable to one another um, and can be used in combination. So, uh, so we have many options now um, that we didn't have 15 years ago, 20 mm -hmm. years ago, 30 years ago. Um, that people can make use of. So I'm very excited about this time in history. If you have to have uh, diabetes and you have to have depression and diabetes, now is a good time in history uh, to, to have options for treatment. Mm -hmm. Are the tools the same for a young adult versus uh, maybe someone, you know, in their midlife or their 
end of life? Are the tools, the screening tools the same? The, the, the underlying fundamental tools are, the, are comparable to one another. Okay. But how people experience diabetes is very different uh, in adolescence than it may be in the older adult years. Um, and uh, the people who surround them um, or not um, are very different uh, in the context of an adolescent growing up in a family, for example, as opposed to an older adult who may have family members around them or may be living on their own um, or have family members at a distance. So um, the context matters, um, but the, the fundamentals of the tools that we use um, are the same, uh, are okay. comparable. This, I'm sorry, this is Lynn. Whenever you say tools, I'm assuming I, as, as a diabetic patient, I'm assuming that whenever I go to the doctor, they're pulling out some kind of toolbox and handing me a tool or is there some or are they asking me questions? Because most commonly, my experience of having going to the doctor is that they usually don't ask me questions about being depressed. They, they they make me take off my socks and they check my feet. Uh, they check my weight and scold me because I've gained a couple of pounds. Uh, you know, and and then they say, you know, is your meditation still working? And 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 then it's quickly off and on. And so if there's any kind of conversations that that involve depression and any kind of treatment, I'm not getting that as a patient from my doctor. So what are you talking about when you say tools? And what am I as a patient supposed to be aware of whenever I'm going in? So Lynn, I, I so appreciate you sharing your experience because you're not alone just to know that many, many patients have similar experiences where they may be grappling with mood or have a past history of um, dealing with depressed mood and the question doesn't come up in the healthcare encounter. So um, what I'm hoping is that the healthcare professionals listening to this podcast, uh, this will help to jog their, their sensitivity and sensibility about asking those important questions. I would also say though, that as uh, people with diabetes, right? Um, that, that it's perfectly okay. And in fact, I would go further than that to say it's really important that um, everyone who's experiencing a change in mood, whatever that change is, whether that's increased anxiety, whether that's increased depression, and certainly we have many more people who are experiencing anxiety and depression now in the context of COVID than we've ever had before. Um, we really have a, a global mental health crisis in process here. Um, but, and I can talk more about COVID uh, in a later podcast, but that um, if you're noticing that change, it's really important that you share that with your doctor uh, because that is the beginning of the conversation um, that we hope will happen with your doctor about what your options are. So to your question, Lynn, which is terrific about what are these tools? I use the term tool metaphorically, so we're not gonna pull out any screwdrivers or hammers or chisels or anything like that. Um, uh, but we do have a variety of different strategies to use. Um, most people, when they think about treating depression, they think about medications, and so antidepressant medications. Um, Prozac first came on the market back in 1990, um, and that was very exciting because that represented a whole new generation of antidepressant medications that uh, we had not had access to before. And that was actually the third generation of antidepressant medications. First generation were called MAOIs. 
um, a second generation were tricyclic antidepressants. Um, both of those two, the first two generations, those medications tend to have more side effects. Um, and so uh, there's pros and cons uh, to the lived experience in taking those. Um, and so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs became available uh, in 1990 and have evolved since then into uh, cousins of, of that family of medications. Um, we have learned that those medications work just as effectively for depression in people with diabetes as those without diabetes. Um, and so we have a variety of those of different medications for people to choose from. Things to know about antidepressant medications. One is that it, because uh, the medications work as a steady state in increasing frequently, the target is to increase serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter, part of the fundamental chemistry of the brain. Um, when, in order to raise levels of serotonin to reduce symptoms, um, we need to take that medication consistently. So it is prescribed daily, um, sometimes twice daily. Um, and it's really important that we take it on schedule so that the brain is getting the stimulation that it needs through the medication in order to uh, increase that level of neurotransmitter. And their serotonin is one neurotransmitter. There are others that can also be stimulated by antidepressant medications. Um, so sometimes I will talk with patients and they will think about their antidepressant medication a little bit like aspirin or Tylenol, that they'll, they'll take it when they feel like they need it, but not every day. Um, but in fact, these medications work um, best and only <laughs> if we take them daily. Um, so that's an important first piece. Second piece is that unfortunately, at this point, they don't work immediately. Um, so unlike aspirin, <laughs> if, we, if we hurt ourselves in some other way, um, we can't get immediate relief. So we do have to hang in there with medications anywhere between two and six weeks to take the medications consistently before we may feel significant improvements in our symptoms. Um, another piece to know is that everybody's brain is different. So we are unique individuals in so many ways. And one of those ways is our particular brain chemistry. And our brain chemistry naturally changes over time. So what that means is that the brain acclimates or changes in response to all of our medications, whether they're particularly targeted for the brain or not. And that um, for antidepressant medications, it is very common for an antidepressant medication to work for a, some period of time, maybe upwards to six months or a year, and then for its effectiveness to start to wane. Um, that's, that's not a moral failing of the person taking the medication, um, and you've done nothing wrong if that happens for you, which it's very common, um, but it does mean that the medications need to be evaluated on a regular basis so that, um, so that dosing can be altered and adjusted so that it is uh, maintaining the effectiveness of the medication. The medication isn't working for you anymore, then it's, um, that's a great time to bring that up to your doctor to tell them that you just don't think that it's working. That might require a dose change, that might require a change of medication altogether and a titrating down of your current medication and a titrating up of your new medication or it may be adding a medication. That's also very common. 
And the goal here is to reduce depression symptoms so that they don't get in your way of day-to-day functioning. So that's a very important piece. So let, let me ask you a couple of uh, questions because, you know, sure. I, I've, I've tried to engage my doctor and in, in to uh, talk about depression and treatment. And one of the things that my doctor has been concerned about is, is you know, your, your kidneys filter blood and uh, they're filtering everything that's in your bloodstream and medications are in your bloodstream and your kidneys are already working overtime. So there's there's this this concern that if you're starting to take medications, you're causing more complications with your kidneys over time. Is that is that something to be concerned about? Because it seems like my doctor has been uh, doesn't necessarily want to prescribe prescribe a medical treatment. He actually prescribes more of a holistic of get out and get some sunshine, get some exercise, change your routine, uh, you know, do things that that make your your body well, and and instead of just popping a pill that that you that will help you. Yeah. So that's that's a good question, Lynn. So. Uh, so there's kind of a number of different thoughts I have uh, in response to that. Um, one piece, I th- so I think in terms of jigsaw puzzles, and so we've got different puzzle pieces in, in the picture of diabetes and depression and its treatment, so to speak. Um, one puzzle piece uh, is, uh, to your doctor's point, that um, the treatment of depression uh, can be achieved in multiple ways, um, including my personal set of favorite set of tools or behavioral tools. Um, so I'm happy to talk about those in a moment. And, and those are very important. Um, they can be done uh, without the addition of medication, they can be done in conjunction with medication. And I would say that um, what we have learned about depression and diabetes is that combination approaches, combination of behaviors, uh, such as exercise and talk therapy, for example, or cognitive behavioral therapy, um, or talk therapy and antidepressant medications combined with each other, or all three combined with each other, um, can be very effective. so that's that's one puzzle piece. Another puzzle piece is um, the extent to which the, what's the best fit for uh, a medication for your total medical picture, and that's going to differ from person to person. Um, the kidney, you're right that the kidneys do filter all of the um, the toxins um, that are naturally produced by our body. They their job is to filtrate all of that out, and so that we can excrete it through urine. Um, as well as excess levels of glucose, by the way. Um, and um, and so that's a, a vital function of the kidneys. Um, and while uh, antidepressant medications like SSRIs are uh, filtered through the kidneys and are excreted, um, they're, they're primarily metabolized by the brain. Um, so where the action is for an antidepressant medication is uh, where it should be, which is in the neurotransmitters or the cells of the brain um, where the synapse is or the communication happens from cell to cell. Um, so um, so this, these are important conversations to have with your doctor, um, whether that's your primary care provider or whether it's specialty care providers. Um, because every person's medical presentation is different. 
Um, for some people, there will be um, more options in terms of medications than there are for other people. Um, and of course, the goal is, um, and hopefully this is a goal that's uh, shared by both the patient and the provider, which it typically is, um, is a total health and wellness. Um, so uh, I'm a big fan of holistic approaches um, and really considering and thinking through you know, each, of those, each of those options. So let me talk a little bit about um, the, the behavioral strategy. So really good news about depression and diabetes, again, is that we have uh, different strategies that we can use. Um, so we have known for some time that talk therapy, um, which the technical term, uh, the, te the typical approach to talk therapy is called cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, uh, we know that this is this is uh, very effective in treating depression um, in the general population and also for people with diabetes. And um, cognitive behavioral therapy is a combination approach. Um, it comes from three different uh, sub subfields of psychology that uh, used to debate each other about which one was the best. Um, the, the cognitive psychologists would contend that everything was about thoughts and thoughts was the, you know, was the, the, uh, the beginning of everything that we do. The behaviorists, and that goes back to uh, landmark psychologists such as B.F. Skinner, contended that if you can't see it, you can't measure it, it mustn't exist, and so every, everything is behavior. And then the humanists uh, were tuned into emotion and their contention was we are emotional creatures. And so therefore, if we're not listening to emotion, we're missing, we're missing out. Um, and those debates raged on for many decades. Um, I'm pleased to say that in the last 20 to 30 years, we've, we've come all together in psychology and we now know that thoughts, feelings and behaviors form something of a triangle. Um, this is something that I typically talk about with my patients uh, in session. And that they all are, they're like threads in a tapestry. They all interact with one another. How we think about situations influences how we feel and what we do or don't do. What we do or don't do, particularly related to diabetes self-care, influences how we think about ourselves and how we feel physically and emotionally. And how we feel if we're feeling depressed, anxious, unsafe, distressed, that influences our thoughts and influences our choices in what we do. And because all three of these things are interconnected with one another, if we make modest changes to even just one of those, because they're dance partners, they will all move together. If one dance partner moves, all of the dance partners move together. Um, and so um, my caveat here is that um, I, I always want people to know that I'm not suggesting that we just all walk around with happy thoughts all the time. Um, that that's not realistic. Um, that's not appropriate. <laughs> if we're going through tough times, we're gonna we're gonna experience that emotionally and in terms of our thoughts and in terms of our of our behaviors. Um, and certainly, we've all been through tough times recently uh, through COVID nineteen. But uh, but. It is about realistic thinking and it is about breaking some of those habits of thinking and feeling and behaviors that have formed that perpetuate depression. And so um, the strategies that we use when we work with, when we use CBT 
are to uh, retune some of those thoughts and to become aware of those habits of thinking, and then to really challenge some of those habits that keep us in the cycle of depression rather than um, emerging out of depression and uh, being able to re-regulate our, our emotions. So, um, uh, okay, talk therapy. Whenever you, whenever you say that to me, I'm, I'm coming in as a patient. Yeah. Uh, talk therapy. Um, is, is that something that I go to my primary diabetes doctor and I'm having a conversation with them? And mm-hmm. is it actually a conversation or is that one of those things that the doctor says, okay, you're depressed, I'm going to put you on some medications, but I really think you probably need to be referred to a therapist. Am I going to be going to a therapist? I mean, what exactly is talk therapy? I mean, because you're using a general term and I'm not familiar with it other than just talking to someone. And if I'm talking to someone, who am I talking to? Yeah, that's a great question, Lynn. Thank you. Um, Yes, so it begins, for most people, it begins with a conversation with one of your providers. That could be your primary care provider, that could be an endocrinologist, that could be um, another care provider, um, to identify, you know, is there a need for uh, mental health or behavioral health, is, is the term of art now, services? Um, And then um, there's a referral process that will likely take place in conjunction with your insurance. So um, your primary care provider or other provider may have someone that they can refer to you. Um, My particular practice is embedded in our adult endocrinology clinic. So um, sometimes patients come to me, well, patients by, by virtue of the way my practice is set up, they come to me through their diabetes doctor or their uh, diabetes educator and care specialist. Um, but for other folks, that may be a referral to um, therapists outside of their practice, um, and that's certainly perfectly fine. Um, and then um, the, the treatment using cognitive behavioral therapy um, is uh, working with a behavioral health specialist That could be someone at the master's level. That could be a licensed um, uh, clinical social worker, LCSW. That could be a psychologist uh, who may have a PhD or uh, a PsyD, which is (laughs) PSY.D, a doctorate in psychology, um, and uh, working with that person over multiple sessions. The average length of treatment tends to be between eight and 10 sessions. Um, and um, the goals for those sessions are um, developed together with the behavioral health therapist. Um, but it's really all about the patient, right? So you get to talk about what you want to talk about. And the, there are two experts in the room. There's um, you, who is the expert on your experience. And then there's the, uh, the therapist, who is an expert in these tools and, and the application of those tools. I wanted to just ask if I could, when we talk about tools, um, what about the tangible tools like technology? Um, Mm -hmm. I know that the diabetes technology world has changed so much, um, and I know that can be individualized for each person, but thinking of where I, when I grew up with my grandfather back in the 1970s to where we are now, and the independence and um, all the support that has been made with the changes in technology, is that another tool? 
Uh, yeah, so, right, that's a, a great question, Kathy. So we have, you know, it's really remarkable. The field of diabetes has been so dynamic in its innovations. Um, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin. Um, and of course, here in Indianapolis, um, the Methodist Hospital um, was one of the early sites, one of the first sites to conduct a clinical trial on the use of uh, insulin, uh, injectable insulin for um, people with type 1 diabetes, um, as was the Joslin Diabetes Center in Boston and, and in Toronto. Um, so it's so if we think about, you know, how much has changed in 100 years, it's really, you know, an incredible journey. Um, and part of those changes has been not only uh, incredible innovation in terms of medications, particularly for people with type 2 diabetes, right? We've had uh, just a, a tremendous uh, increase in the number of medications available to manage blood sugars for people with type 2 diabetes. Um, and in addition, we've had the development of devices. So insulin pumps, you know, the very first insulin pump was uh, the size of a very large backpack. <laughs> And this, so, so some people may have seen this picture um, and, you, and very few patients wore this on their back to um, give themselves continuous insulin because their pancreas didn't, didn't produce it anymore, the beta cells in the pancreas. Um, and that has evolved tremendously now so that we have insulin pumps that work in conjunction with continuous glucose monitors. And, uh, and the latest generation of those insulin pumps can detect and give us signs and symptoms about when our blood sugars are, are on a consistent rising pattern, when they're cons consistently dropping, um, and then have safety features to turn off insulin if blood sugars are going lower, uh, or even um, uh, to add insulin um, if blood sugars are consistently rising. So not all insulin pumps do that yet, but we have many that do. Um, so we've really, we've seen a tremendous um, uh, change in, in measuring blood sugars, right? That used to be chem strips in, in urine. Um, and that's evolved now to devices like the Libre or the Dexcom or Medtronic uh, continuous glucose monitoring sensors, where you put a little transmitter in your arm typically, and then you can look at all of the data um, over time, which can be incredibly handy. These tools, like every other tool, um, are can be uh, very helpful if you know how to use them and you're trained how to use them, um, or they can be overwhelming um, depending on where you're at with your with your relationship with your diabetes. Um, so, uh, so they we we hope and they are intended to be very useful, um, but that requires support, support from healthcare providers, support from diabetes education and care specialists, and, um, and sometimes support from family um, and insurers to, so that we can get the supplies we need and we can um, have access to the tools um, and to be able to use them. I would say though that those tools don't directly affect mood um, in the sense that we don't use those tools to directly impact depression, for example. That said, um, how we interpret the, the data we get from those tools 
can be influenced by our mood. So how we see the world depends on what, what filter or what lens we're using. If we're feeling depressed, we're going to see the world differently. If we're feeling anxious, we'll see the data from our, our sensor or from our, our glucometer differently than when we're feeling good or, or confident or um, at peace. So, so the I'm even tools are thinking, involved, but they're not, they're not, those tools are not necessarily the route to treatment. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm also thinking of the young diabetic that is um, in school and is trying to hide her equipment or hide her device because she doesn't want to be that the young, the young one that's different from everyone else. You know, you know what I mean? Which affects her entire self-esteem and and her psychosocial well-being. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's gotten a lot better where they can hide them under the shirt versus having the big <laughs> the big right. devices out there. So thank well, you for addressing that. I appreciate it. Well, and I was gonna say, Mary, I, I think you're you're right because you know, Kathy, you asked about uh, technology. Whenever I was diagnosed back in 2018, um, I, you know, I'm I'm 50 years old, so I'm I still kind of like to use technology. I like to think I'm a little techno savvy at times, even though my kid says I I'm not. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I still can't program certain uh, clocks in the house. Um, but you know, one of the things that I immediately turned to is I went and looked for apps online. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I used uh, one that was really helpful, uh, and, and we're not being paid to, to plug this or anything, but I, I used an app called My Sugar, and um, it, it uh, actually, it was really helpful. It was friendly. It, it, it lets you monitor, and it was one of those things that I was able to watch my, my weight go down and my blood sugar go down, and I could see the correlation between the two. And it, it goes back to what you were saying about Mary, about your your mood and, and the emotions tied to it. Mm-hmm. Whenever I actually started seeing progress, mm-hmm. I felt better. Yes. I felt I can do this. Yes. I just feel like I was, you know, in a in a depressed mood. And then even whenever I did get depressed, it wasn't anything that was uh I didn't. I, I I had numbers that I was looking at that I didn't want to change. So I made for sure that I continued to do what I needed to do, despite the fact that I didn't want to get out of bed, uh-huh. or despite the fact that I didn't feel good that day, yeah. because I knew I needed I needed to stay healthy and needed to, to do things. So for me, those online apps lo- worked wonders for me. My fitness pal. My sugar, several mm-hmm. several different apps, and and, and what also really helped me, uh, a, a part of treatment, is online groups through places like Facebook, mm-hmm. um, and it's really amazing how whenever you get on those groups, uh, just how ignorant people are. And then what you discover is that there's a commonality to their ignorance. And it's not, it's the first question that they always ask is, why didn't my doctor tell me this? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Or my my doctor gave me this, but he doesn't explain anything. And that all comes down to, you know, the treatment aspect. You've been diagnosed. Here, I'm going to give you a pill. Go on. And they don't know what to do next as part of their treatment. And then there have been discussions over the last year about depression. And it's really amazing to, to see some of the discussions. And they've actually, I've seen some people have support groups where they say, message me we can have a conversation where people are starting to lean on each other and 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 so forth so that's my experience with technology and and the emotional and the mental aspect of of treatment whenever it comes to dealing with diabetes so lynn there's there's several themes there in in your experience um that i want to underscore here. Um, One is the value of peer support. Um, So I think you're right on target that um, particularly in the context of COVID, but certainly even before that, and we will have these tools available to us beyond COVID, um, is um, connecting with others um, who understand each other's experience or who can relate to one another's experience, even if they're different. Um, so the, um, the American Association of Diabetes Educators or uh, American Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, ACE, A-D-C-E-S, um, is a wonderful uh, website um, that has resources, including a list of, of um, reputable diabetes peer support networks. And there are different networks for different types of folks. So children, for parents, for uh, type one diabetes, for adults with type two diabetes. Um, So there are many different kinds of networks. Um, Some use Facebook as a platform, but many others don't. They have their own um, access points. Um, And so we just encourage people to uh, think about that. And if one group doesn't feel like a good fit for you, there are many others to choose from. So just know that there are many options there. Um, We also know that, you know, how our body feels. um, So our physical sensations and our environment impact thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And so Lynn, to your point about how you interpret the numbers you see on your sensor or on your glucometer, um, it depends a lot on how you're feeling, right? Um, that when we take care of our physical body, that influences this thoughts, feelings, and behaviors triangle that I was talking about there. And the people that we're surrounded by, our environment um, is important. Um, and so we can work on all of those pieces. Any changes to any one of those influences the whole system. The other tool that I wanted to be sure to mention here is physical activity or exercise. Um, because we know now in uh, a large body of literature in the general population and also for people with diabetes, that uh, exercise, when we move our body through space and time, and that does not need to involve a gym, it doesn't have to involve um, spandex or (laughs) ruining our hair with sweating, (laughs) but just moving our bodies, uh, whether that's walking or doing something gentle, stretching, yoga, whatever that is, Uh, for you, um, that that not only has an impact and is helpful in managing blood sugars, which of course is important for us in diabetes, um, but also um, helps us to manage our mood. And so the work that I've done uh, in an intervention called Program Active, adults coming together to increase vital exercise, 
um, has demonstrated now in two different studies that when people um, use exercise about 150 minutes per week of aerobic activity, like walking, um, uh, over a 12-week period, that we see significant improvements in depression scores, um, as well as uh, the potential for significant improvements in A1C. And what's really exciting is that in our study, uh, where we compared people with uh, talk therapy, people with exercise alone, people with talk therapy and exercise happening in the same 12-week period compared to people who received none of those interventions, that we found that the people who exercised and had improvements in their A1C, those improvements were sustained six and 12 months after they were in the formal intervention, which is pretty remarkable. Um, so that, that that change that they made over a three month period had lasting effects for them six and 12 months later. So exercise is great. Um, and the key is that it is something that feels safe, something that feels um, appropriate to what your body can do in its current condition. Um, and uh, that's enjoyable. Um, so many of us think about exercise as, you know, something we have to do. It's an obligation. You know, we, we have staring contests with our, our, you know, our treadmill in our basement, or uh, we have to un uncover the exercise bike that's in the corner that's also done a really good job of, of keeping our clothes up off the floor or whatever it is. Um, and it's really about um, doing things that you enjoy. This time of year, we're in springtime right now and beginning of summer, um, this is a great time um, to be able to uh, engage all of our senses by um, going outdoors and safe, safe spaces um, to be able to um, get some physical activity. So it's great to have a conversation with your doctor about what's appropriate for you in your current medical condition as your body is today. Um, and, uh, and then to, in, to do it. Um, and exercise works just as well as antidepressant medications, as it turns out, um, uh, but it only works if we do it. So um, we do have to prompt ourselves and get into the habit of engaging in physical activity. And it's good for diabetes and it's great for depression. So that would be the other tool. And Mary, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that, um, you know, whenever, I, whenever I started my routine to get well as a, as a diabetic, walking was one of my main things that I did. And it really helped because I had a goal of so many number of steps that I want that I need to take each day. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm going to be honest, I, I did it a little bit because uh, I, I, I felt it was somewhat of a cheat because I like to eat. And uh, in my in one of my apps, uh, they measure, you know, the amount of calories that you burn. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, I, the doctor put me on a 1500 uh, calorie a day diet, uh, which is, which is okay, but it can get really hard to stay within that boundary. And sure. then I, and then, um, but what I discovered, and this is where, where the cheating comes in is that I would walk. And as soon as I burned 200 calories, I was eating something else because I was like, whoop, uh, <laughs> those were, those, those calories were wasted. So my mood kind of changed because I was like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm exercising, I'm doing good. And oh, I get to eat something. Uh, and so it, it, 
and I discovered that that wasn't necessarily the best thing to do. Right. So I, I um, and then I discovered that uh, what really helped was watching my carb count because uh-huh. as I started to understand diabetes a lot more, yes. and understanding what turns to sugar and what and what doesn't and what empty energy is and what what. And so uh, those calories, it didn't matter if I was eating 1,500 calories or 300 calories a day. What really mattered was my the the amount of energy that was in those calories. And if I exceeded the amount of energy that I was needing to allot myself, I was not going to lose weight. I was not going to have lower blood sugar. And quite honestly, I didn't feel good either. Right, right. And, and, and so it all played in, in into that. So exercise, I thought, was good. So listeners, don't think you're going to cheat just because you worked off 200 calories and you can go have something else to eat. That's not the way it works. You're going to have to uh, you're going to have to do something. You have to do something a little bit different. It's a lot harder than what you think. <laughs> Right. And, and, you know, our goals differ, right, from person to person. So for some people, um, one of their goals, uh, the recommended goals is weight loss um, or weight management. Um, and what we've learned about uh, that, uh, that, that literature um, is that um, it's really food um, that, and number of calories that, uh, and carbs that drive weight loss um, uh, more actually than physical activity. And physical activity is really important. Um, but when when it comes to weight loss, it's really all about the food. <laughs> um, and so um, uh, what we're talking about here is diabetes and depression. And um, the physical activity is really important um, in managing um, depression and also preventing depression after it's resolved. Um, it's a great insurance policy for pre- um, preventing uh, subsequent episodes of depression. So um, it's a good habit to get into and um, and it's important to mix it up over time so that it doesn't get boring. Well, but you also got to remember that the, whenever it comes to self-perception, you know, diabetes, most diabetics are overweight. And if you're overweight, society has a tendency to, uh, to not recognize you as someone of, of value or, or having a lot of physical self-worth because you're mm-hmm. you're fat and ugly, basically. Mm-hmm. To be honest. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that plays into a lot of the whole depression. And whenever you're a diabetic, you're like, well, I'm already fat and I, and I can't lose weight and I've got diabetes. So it, I, I understand the, the food is just an aspect of it and so is the exercise. But the whole self-perception, mm-hmm. whenever I started losing weight, the fact that I went from a size 52-inch waist mm-hmm. down to a 42-inch waist, mm-hmm. it, it, it was amazing that I, that, that, you know, I did those Weight Watcher photos where you would go and, and have the pair of pants and you, you've got them stretched out halfway on the other side of you. And, mm-hmm. and so it, that really helped with my depressed mood there is that I set a goal I was exercising and and that really really helped so for me I think it is that whole total total picture 
that 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 comes in the play. Um, my my key thing is I'm I'm hoping that it doesn't become a cycle. Uh, how do we how do we how do we make for sure? How do I make for sure that I'm going through treatment? I've got medication. I've had my you said ten to twelve weeks counseling sessions. How do I how do I make for sure I don't get back there into that cycle? Yeah, so you're right that it is about our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with our diabetes, um, and that can be a pretty complicated one. I one of the questions I ask people when I meet them for the first time is, "What? How would you describe your relationship with your diabetes?" Um, and you know, I get a variety of answers. For some people with type one diabetes, they say, "You know, it's just part of me. I've been living with diabetes all along, so I don't really think much about it." For other people, um, the answer may be, we're not really on speaking terms right now. <laughs> we don't talk to each other very often, me and diabetes. Um, and there's a whole you know, spectrum of, of answers that people come up with with that question. But I think it's a, it's a good question for people to even check in with themselves. What is my relationship with my diabetes uh, right now in my journey of diabetes? Because it is a, a long-term lifetime gig. Um, uh, so I, I think that, you know, that's a really important piece um, for us to keep in mind. Um, and, and then I would say with regard to depression prevention, uh, that one of the things that we can do um, and is important to do as you're coming out of a depressive episode um, is to notice what was the first symptom that tends to occur in your own cycle. Um, the earlier we can detect depression, the better off we can be in nipping it in the bud the next time it comes around. So we do know that, and my own work has confirmed this for people with diabetes, that um, if we've had one episode of depression, uh, we are likely to have another one. Um, but it's important that, um, that we recognize when those um, episodes uh, are starting again so that we can take active steps to uh, work against that depression so it reduces our exposure to depression and um, sets us up for better quality of life. Well, we definitely want to thank you for a wonderful, rich conversation um, regarding treatment options and then diving into some personal experiences to kind of help elaborate um, you know, how individualized these treatment options need to be um, depending on the patient, right? And their whole psychosocial well-being. Thank you for joining the conversation. If you found this conversation of interest, we encourage you to join the conversation by visiting us online at qsource.org slash conversation podcast. The conversation was produced by QSource, the Quality Innovation Network Quality Improvement Organization for Indiana, under a contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Content does not necessarily reflect CMS policy.